0: Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system.
1: Michael Easley.
0: Is available. At the tone, please record your message. Hi, Dr. Easley. This is Julie. Hey,
2: Dr. E. This is Eric. This is Dave from Frisco, Texas. Hi, this is Dave calling Michael.
0: That they don't believe there is eternal hell because I'm stuck in Leviticus
3: that after death they believe that god may give the chance for other religions to
2: come to faith in christ breaking the bonds of familiar spirits what gave him the power to forgive sin before he went to the cross
3: You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, and this is our second episode of a new segment called Ask Dr. E. So naturally, I'm sitting here staring at Dr. E himself.
1: Sorry. (laughs) Not much to stare at. (laughs) Not much to look at. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Are you
3: ready for another round of questions? Absolutely. This is fun. Fire away. Yeah. All right. We're going to play our first question from Julie. And hey, if you are just hearing about this for the first time, you can call us 615-281-9694 and ask any biblical theological question that's been bugging you and you want to hear Michael's thoughts. So let's hear from Julie.
0: Hi, Dr. Easley. This is Julie. I I have a question for you. I'm calling from Spring Lake, Michigan. Um, This has come up recently. I I would think that there are certain beliefs that you have to have to truly be a genuine believer in Christ. But one has come up recently that some of my dear Christian friends seem to have been uh, taken away with, and that is that they don't believe there is eternal hell. And that they have referred me to various authors, um, well-known authors that have changed their mind about hell. In my mind, um, there are certain essentials that have to be there. But I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Um, It does concern me. I am glad to be in Christ and saved from hell. And I can't understand not believing in that, uh, I would think that would change uh, quite a few things in your life, maybe how you look at sin. So I just wanted your thoughts.
1: Julie, great question. Uh, Let's take one example. The National Association of Evangelicals, years ago, tried to come up with seven uh, points that, okay, this meant you were a Christian. And, uh, I mean, confessions have done this. Heidelberg Confession, uh, catechisms have done this. So this is nothing new. Um, And there's something intrinsic in believers that we, we watch someone else or or we hear of a new theology or some teaching. And go, you can't be a Christian and believe that. So let's just let's just acknowledge that's a reality in the culture we live in. It's not new, but we do have these trends that come and go. Um, the gospel, to begin with, is Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul, in in the letter to the Galatians or in First uh, Corinthians fifteen, is very clear. About these elements. And if we alter or change the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as being what we're believing in, then we are teaching a different gospel. Now, the gospel isn't just the declaration of those items, the gospel is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. I think churches and Christians can use this word in all kinds of ways. They're not necessarily wrong. But there's an elasticity to the word. So we say, what is the gospel? What's the explicit gospel? I read a book a couple of years ago. The explicit gospel. And these are attempts to clarify uh, as Christians what we are and are not communicating. Again, for review life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And the man or woman who puts his faith, his hope, his belief, his trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I call that the benchmark. It's not what I've done, it's what he's done. It's not what I do, it's what he's accomplished. I'm putting my faith in him to do for me what I can never do for myself. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one can boast. Ephesians two, eight and nine. So that with a bow on that, that's the gospel. That's what we're believing in. Now As we grow in Christ, we're going to learn. We're going to learn what baptism means. We're going to learn what obedience is. We're going to learn what sanctification is. And I often refer to the salvation is the faith benchmark. Sanctification is the process of faith. So we're coming to faith, but we're living faithfully. Coming to faith is our salvation. Living faithfully is our sanctification. Okay, long answer, uh, long beginning to the answer. Now, let's talk about what you're referring to as annihilationism. Uh, John Stott, who to many Christians who read commentaries and study theology, John Stott is a tremendous author. He's with the Lord now. And Stott later in his life became an annihilationist. And as a lot of these leaders and thinkers theologically go, uh, then his or her followers might go with him. Well, so-and-so changed his view on this doctrine, so ergo I should change my view on that doctrine. And so the annihilationism trend began years ago, and it's sort of, you know, in common language, well, I mean, he's a merciful God, he's a loving God, he's a kind God. Why would he let someone suffer in eternity forever forever? I mean, that's cruel, that's capricious, that's evil, that's a malevolent God. You know, he's walking heaven's floor, rubbing his hands and laughing, this brooding laugh, (laughs) ha, 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 you know, sending people to hell. Well, we know that's not who our God is, right? But that's the image that we can concoct from a human lens, not a heavenly lens. Let's think about one passage in particular that I go to to say, I don't think annihilationism is what Scripture teaches. This is from uh, Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus. Now there's a rich man, habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day, and a poor man named Lazarus who was laid at the gate covered with sores. So Jesus is telling a story about these two antithetical people, wealthy and destitute. The poor man dies, he's carried away into Abraham's bosom. The rich man dies, and he's buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes in torment. He saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. He cried out to Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember during your life, and he he talks about what benefits he had. Fast forward in the passage, he says, besides this, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you cannot, and those who cross over from there to us. And he said, I beg you, Father, send to him in my father's house, I have five brothers, in order that they may be warned, so they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses, they have the prophets, let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. This is verse 31 of Luke 16. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. A clear allusion to himself. So, all that to say, um, the doctrine of annihilationism, I think, is at odds, the teaching of annihilation, with Scripture. If a person believes that, are they truly a Christian? Well, I throw up my hands and say, maybe yes, maybe no. (laughs) I can't say belief or disbelief of one doctrine disqualifies them. Um, And and let's just say they're confused in their view of heaven and hell. Would that mean they're not a Christian? And I I would argue, probably not. Going back to my opening remark, if they have trusted in Christ and Christ alone to do for them what they cannot do for themselves, uh, if, if, if a person struggles with a sin, if they struggle with temptation, if they're, uh, you know, you fill in the blank, does that mean they're not a Christian? We should be very careful that we uh, jump on a bat. Well, you can't be a Christian if you don't believe in a literal six-day creation. You can't be a Christian if you don't believe in an old earth theory. You can't be a Christian if, you know, well, we're, we're now confusing uh, what I would call sanctification and growth issues with salvation issues. Does that make sense, Hannah? Yeah,
3: I think so. I I think about, I had a professor at Dallas Seminary that would always talk about tier one, tier two, and tier three issues. And today as a church, we've made a lot of tier two issues, tier one issues that really should be in tier two, whether it's infant baptism, immersion, you know, all these things that we're fighting over. And like you're saying, salvation is in question on what you believe about a certain doctrine.
1: I think when we get to heaven and walk the threshold, we're gonna find out how wrong we, we were all were about so many things. <laughs> yeah. we're gonna be falling on our face like John, uh, like a dead man, going, "Wow, how did I get here? Goodness sakes, yeah. I was so wrong in so many ways." And that doesn't mean to be pejorative. We shouldn't right. be good students of Scripture. But the ability to hold these intention, I think, is really what's important.
3: So what do you say to the person? Because, I, I mean, I don't want to believe in hell. I get it. <laughs> uh, I mean, Julie's talking about she's got several friends that don't believe in hell. What would you say to them or what advice would you give to Julie if it comes up again?
1: Well, I mean, if you can do this in a, you know, let's learn together way, not a bulldogmatic way. Mm-hmm. Read Revelation 20 um, and verse 7. When... When the thousand years are completed, this is when Satan is free for his thousand-year run, uh, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. And the passage continues, uh, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. And ever hmm. that is a literal hell not annihilation the lake of fire is eternal and here's the real uncomfortable part of this to me Hannah um, I believe men and women are made of the image of God meaning we are eternal hmm. we have this temporal set of clothing but we're eternal God's not going to annihilate an eternal being sure so when we die we are fit for eternality Either with him yeah. or apart from him, mm. and while that is chilling, uh, it again reassures our salvation. It also encourages us. This is important business to talk to people about Christ mm-hmm. that they know what they believe. Mm-hmm. This isn't just a you know you vote you know Republican, Democratic, Independent, Libertarian, whatever you want to vote for. This yeah. is eternal. Yeah, and um, this is not playing around in things of God. I think the Word is our authority. And uh, I'll fall and die on that, yeah. Not on trend in theology of well, he's loving, he's kind, right. he wouldn't send those people to hell, right? Well, he didn't send them hell. They okay, made a choice,
3: and not to belabor this, but how do you? Go, I mean, Rob Bell obviously is the most known, at least to me, of pastors who have come out over the years and said, okay, I think we've got this wrong. Hell doesn't exist. They know the Bible. Rob Bell knows the Bible. So how? What? And I, you probably haven't read his book that you know, gives his whole thesis, but what are they doing with all that scripture?
1: I call it horizontal Christianity. I I think when, when people, men and women, teachers, authors, whomever, when they look at social issues, and more importantly than scriptural issues, when they look at the human condition, Mm -hmm. uh, well-intentioned though it be, the authority is not our experience. The authority has to be the Word of God. Mm-hmm. I'm not saved because of my behavior. I'm saved because of the authority of Scripture, what it tells me about me. I'm not a sinner because I feel guilty. I'm a sinner because of what Scripture tells me is sin. Mm-hmm. So once we move our mooring and footing off the authority of the Word of God and we start looking at the world through our own lens, and, and you know the altruism of uh, love wins sounds great. Yeah. And I could preach that. I wouldn't preach it the way Rob Bell preached it. I'd say the love of Christ is the only way you win. Yeah. And if you go to human-defined love, horizontal Christianity, where we're looking more. So I, what they do, in my opinion, and I can't answer for them, I, but my, my concern is they left the mooring of the Bible as God's word, the authority of scripture, and they add to it and they extrapolate it out and they take it from this context and they misapply it. And that's where James warns us, not many of you become teachers, for you will incur a stricter judgment. Yeah. And you and I both have friends and acquaintances that sit in some pretty goofy churches. Mm-hmm. And and it breaks my heart to listen to this nonsense mm-hmm. that people teach them. And uh, it, it breaks my heart for them, but it also scares me because as I go, teachers. what am I doing as a Bible teacher where I'm leading people astray? Yeah. Um, when you stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, Yeah. I want to be able to look in the Bible and go, Okay, I saw it there. That's the lake of fire. Yeah. It's eternal. My argument's with the Bible now, right? not with my experience of, well, a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. Well, a loving God didn't send them to hell. Mm-hmm. A loving God gave them opportunities. Mm-hmm. Unless they're robotic or automatons, they got to make a response. Sure. And their response is bad language, free will. Yep. We had the opportunity to come to Christ. Yes, we're elect. we talked about a prior a prior question, but this all gets tangled, and that's where human lens, heavenly lens. We're trying to explain things from a finite viewpoint that come at an infinite level.
3: Okay, well, speaking of trying to grapple with hard to understand Bible passages, let's listen to this question from Eric.
4: Hey Dr. Eve, this is Eric, and I'm just calling in. Uh, because I'm stuck in Leviticus, the end of chapter 10 into chapter 11. I spent 10 minutes just trying to figure out what my takeaway should be where Aaron basically challenges what Moses was saying about an offering. And verse 19, behold, this very day they presented their sin offering, their burnt offering before the Lord. And things like these happened to me if I would eaten a sin offering today. Would have been good in the sight of the Lord, verse 20. When Moses heard that, it seemed good in his sight. And I I just don't even know what my takeaway is. And then it goes into chapter 11 with the different animals that are unclean. Um, I would just love to know in the context back then, because a pig and things that we eat now, uh, what the historical context is. I'm trying to go through Leviticus, I understand that it's important to see the severity of what Israelites had to deal with and how I don't have to be at that same ruling today with the new covenant of Christ. But just, yeah, specifically the end of chapter 10 in Leviticus, I'm just struggling with. So would love some in context about that. Thank you.
3: And I've just got to interject, what I love about this is Eric called us. It wasn't even 5 a.m. in the morning, Dad. I mean, you know this guy has gotten He's up. studying. He's studying, and he's trying to grapple with the word, and I, I love lo-
1: that. And I love that he was stuck in Leviticus. <laughs> I think most of us feel that way. Oh, I love it, Eric. Um, number one, I-, I can remember Hannah reading Le- uh, Leviticus so many years just being like, okay, Lord, I'm just going to. Forgive me. I'm not going to read through my Bible right now. I'm going to skip. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I was introduced to this man named Dr. Alan Ross back when I was in seminary. Dr. Ross has rocked my world and continues to. But he wrote a commentary, which I'm holding in my hand, called Holiness to the Lord, huh. a guide to the exposition of the book of Leviticus. Think about somebody actually preaching Leviticus today in this economy. Anyway. They um, <laughs> would lose church members it, so Well, they certainly be scratching their head. However... What Eric is asking is so significant. Let's look at Ross's title again, Holiness to the Lord. Uh, If I could give you a little admonition to all of us, God is holy. We don't mess with him. You only approach him a certain way. And the book of Leviticus laid out the Levitical, Aaron was the first priest. The tribe of Levi then are men who minister to the temple and tabernacle complex first that was the portable worship center in the, in the in the wilderness and then later of course when they build the temple complex the sons of the Levitical priest are the only ones who can uh, take care of it now let's talk specifically sacrifices water wood cleaning up the debris of uh, i don't want to you know gross people out but if they've ever gone deer hunting and you field dress an animal think about uh, Field dressing all these lambs, uh, sheep, yeah. goats, bulls—a uh, continual process of offering sacrifice. Um, our friend Bob Welch talked about. It smelled like a big barbecue. He yeah. probably wasn't. He wasn't off. That's yeah. probably what it was like. But they're burning them completely. Uh huh. So when it starts getting burned, it's not necessarily a pleasing aroma to us. But the whole depiction of a sacrifice was in our place, on our behalf, instead of our guilt, our sin, something else had to die. Mm -hmm. And blood was life. So you're killing the animal, draining the life out of it, separating the uh, disgusting parts, let's just say that, and then offering the animal and its meat primarily as a burnt offering. Some of that then went to feed the the Levites for for, uh, for food. Now, all that said, Leviticus is the is the prescription and description of how you do these offerings. And the meticulous nature of each one of them was uh, you are approaching a holy God and he will strike you dead if you do this wrong. Hmm. So there's a sobriety we need to have. Now, in the passage that, that you refer to, there's a number of things going on. Um, his sons have been, have been struck dead because they were fooling around. They were, they were making some bad choices, and we won't go into that too deeply. I'm going to read from Dr. Ross because he's going to say this more succinctly than I can say. Uh, part of the message concerns the judgment of God and how it should be accepted and presented to a congregation. It requires a clear public acknowledgement to the justice of God People who witness such events must come away with a proper understanding and acceptance of the holy nature of God. Instructions for the priesthood provided a theology of ministry in the story. Ministers must ensure they can distinguish between the holy and unholy, the clean and the unclean, as they teach the decrees of the Lord. Now, Aaron's particular with, you know, his reservation would be they didn't do this right. They mm. didn't follow the way God intended. How in the world can I sort of reset the clock and get this sacrificial system back on the way it was? Not, not to mention, these are my family. Yeah. So I think that's where we see the compassion of God in the work of Moses. And yet preserving you approach this God the way he said so. This is serious business when Nadab and, and Abinah who are destroyed because they didn't do it.
3: Yeah. Back to Eric's question, what's his takeaway? What's our takeaway
1: from this? Well, and again, I'm going to have to appeal to my professor, Dr. Ross, who, who says you know, in the New Testament, our sanctification as leaders, particularly here, uh, calls for us to conduct ourselves in a proper light. Mm-hmm. And so when we do things wrong, we need to acknowledge that and approach God the right way. Um, he would allude to a holy and unholy. For example, let's think about the Lord's table. Uh, when you come to the Lord's table, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the minister is to be a person of self-control. Uh, they are exercised discernment. Uh, we understand matters of a conscience. Um, we talk a lot today about drinking. Well, goodness, is it a sin to drink or not to drink? And that would be also a good discussion to say, is there a time to reset those arguments and say, okay, I'm approaching a holy God. This isn't just about liberty. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with a holy God. So as you plow through the rest of Leviticus, I cheer you on, Eric. Uh, Look for holiness to the Lord. This is a serious matter. It's a fearful and awesome thing to approach God. Now, praise God. Christ fulfilled all that. Yeah. So we don't live in the same fear and terror that uh, the Aaronic priesthood would have. You know, Tie a bell around his, his, uh, his garment, yeah. a rope around his leg yeah. <laughs> when he goes in, lest he has sin in his heart. He's struck dead. Um, you know, Christ did that for us. Yeah. So um, we, we can become too colloquial with our God. And I think one of the lessons is uh, this is still who he is. Mm-hmm. Christ is the high priest who made the way. So we don't live in that fear. Praise God. Amen.
3: Okay, and that commentary was Holiness to the Lord by Dr. Alan P. Ross, and I'll make sure that's linked in our show notes if this, anyone this is interested. This is heady stuff. Interesting. And,
1: and just as a sidebar, Eric, and to others, um, one of the things I I do each year is I take on a book of the Bible that I'm going to study for, let's say, a month. I spent almost three years in Leviticus, and uh, boy, did I learn things uh, just from Bible study methodology and, of course, by the great aid of this commentary. It's not an easy book. It's a little bit more on a graduate level. But um, I encourage people, you know, if you get stuck in a book or it bores you, uh, just plow through it for a month or two months or three months and see what exposure to that over and over, over will start. You'll start to see things you've missed, and it's like the lights go on. You know, you really learn a lot.
3: Okay, Dad, so this next question was actually a ride-in from Jared. He said, Um, Okay, I've had a couple people with this view, somewhat influenced by C.S. Lewis, that after death they believe that God may give the chance for other religions to come to faith in Christ, similar to Old Testament believers being preached to. Would love to hear your thoughts on this view.
1: Great question, Jared. And we've got a host of issues, again, like a lot of these questions where Christians have different opinions. Um, If we go back to open theism, the idea of openness, a second-chance theology would be a simple way of articulating it. The idea that if God is loving and if they never had a chance to hear, and wouldn't he if, you know, and that appeals to our horizontal view of Christianity. But in Hebrews nine twenty-seven, let me read this to you. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. You know, Hannah, when I was, we were flying back, your mom and I, in 1990, from a 10th year anniversary trip to Germany and Austria that your grandfather uh, kindly gave your mom and me, and the plane was having trouble, and it was dumping <laughs> like 10 hours of fuel over oh. the ocean and turning around real slowly. And they were announcing it in German and in Spanish. Oh, and everybody's freaking out. And Of course, English is the last language because right. we're also rants. And they announced that we're, and she's clenching the thing. We're going to die. And I quoted to her, honey, uh, it's appointed for man to die once. And after this <laughs> comes judgment. And she goes, you're not helping. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but seriously, uh, the scripture is clear. We have all of life to respond to this offer of salvation. If we had a second or third or fourth chance or post-purgatory chance, as the Catholics believe, then at the end of the day, what difference does it make? Just live like you want to live, because when you die, God's going to give you, you know, all these different options. Oh, I'll give you a do-over. Oh, it's no big deal. Inasmuch as it is appointed for man to die once and after this judgment. And it just seems very clear that there are no options. Lewis was was a great author, a great writer, uh, touched a lot of important issues, especially the mindset of the 1950s, but he was not necessarily an extraordinary theologian. And so in his his attempt to make the Bible relatable, understandable, especially to children and young adults, he exceeded, uh, he didn't hold to inerrancy. He didn't hold to a number of doctrines that, that I would hold to tenaciously. And uh, if if he truly believed there was an opportunity after death, I don't know. But there are many who hold that view. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've heard people say, God doesn't really know what we're doing in this openness theology. And so because of that leading to our death, he doesn't know. So after we die, we go, oh, there really is death. There really the heaven or hell. I guess I better choose now.
3: What does that mean? God doesn't know what we're doing.
1: Well, part of openness theology, and, and there are better theologians than me to speak to this, but my understanding of this is that we're given sort of a football field of opportunity. And, and God wants us to get to the other end zone, mm-hmm. but he doesn't know the plays and the how we're going to there. get there. And some of that lends into different tentacles of, you know, when, when you die, you have this other opportunity because God doesn't know or predicate it. Um, But again, Hebrews 9.27 is hard for me to get around.
3: Okay, but what about the person who literally never hears the name of Jesus their entire life?
1: Um, A number of passages, uh, what's cumbersomely called the ontological argument in Romans 1 and 2, that God has revealed himself in general revelation, Mm -hmm. specific revelation being Christ His word, the Bible, Mm -hmm. general being the stars in the heavens, uh the creation. Um, I am one of those crazy people that believes uh, intelligence comes from intelligence. Sure. Intelligence can't come from non-intelligence. You could run a thousand tornadoes through a thousand junkyards for a thousand years and you would never produce a 747.
3: Yeah. A million
1: monkeys and a million typewriters for a million years, they're never going to write a Beethoven piece. That's right. Okay. So intelligence begats intelligence. So general revelation being you look at the stars in the sky, you look in in nature, the course of affairs, there's got to be intelligence behind this. It didn't just happen. So that's an oversimplified view of the ontological argument creation uh psalm 19 the skies in the scripture the skies re- declare the glory of god right but the scripture reveals the truth of god mm. so we need both to me the idea is that god would never quote relegate someone to hell for what they never had an opportunity mm-hmm. to believe
3: mm-hmm. do you think about small children
1: i have uh perhaps an unusual view of anyone who is uh, unable to disabled people uh-huh Mentally disabled children who die, stillborns, uh, sudden infant death syndromes. His, um, God, in His great sovereign mercy and love, they were elect. Mm. And I don't, I can't point to chapter and verse other than what David says when uh, his son dies. Think about his son. Mm. His son's born illegitimately to Bathsheba
3: because of his sin.
1: Because of his sin, and the child dies, and David's prostrate. Mm praying for God to deliver him, won't eat, won't drink afterwards. And then he makes that remarkable comment, he cannot come to me, but I will go to him. Mm -hmm. David had faith that that little boy was in heaven. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a God of grace and a God of mercy. And so I choose to fall on that, on those who, let's put it in human terms, don't have the ability as we measure it to put their trust in Christ. Sure. Mentally disabled, an anencephalic child, a trisomy 18 baby, fill in the blank. Yeah. Um. The I just think God, because they're made in the image of God, He yeah. would not relegate them to hell. Yeah. Because they didn't have quote opportunity to believe. Yeah. Um, and again, we could pick that apart endlessly. Horizontal lens, heavenly lens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have to hold it's those intentions.
3: to that. Okay, well, let's jump to our next question and listen to a call from Dave.
2: This is Dave from Frisco, Texas, and I have a question. Jesus forgave two people in the Bible before he went to the cross. What gave him the power to forgive sins before he went to the cross?
1: Great question, Dave, and frankly, something I hadn't thought about. Um, so you, you're you're giving me a, a good thing to noodle over. Uh, my first uh, thought is I go back to Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So when we understand how Paul explains reckoned to him as righteousness, as it's credited in his bank account, would be one way of thinking it. So what did Abraham do? He believed God, and God said, "You're saved." And that is Paul's theology of the gospel of the Old Testament was they came to Christ, quote-unquote, the same way we come to Christ, by faith. So when we come by faith, intrinsic to uh, righteousness is forgiveness because Abraham could not be righteous unless he was forgiven. It wasn't in his flesh. He wasn't better than other people. Uh, When God chose Noah, it wasn't because he was better than anyone else living at that time. Noah found favor, him, God's grace in the Old Testament. God gave him grace to respond, and Noah was favorable then in God's sight. So I, I think um, the question is interesting, but I think by nature of who God is and who Jesus is, he can forgive uh, anyone at all time. Now, where your question is really intriguing and makes me think is, Prior to his resurrection, we were still under the shadow of the law. The resurrection accomplishes completely the forgiveness of man. So we're somehow holding in stasis what we call all these Old Testament believers. Yes, they're forgiven. They're positionally righteous. It's credited them as righteous by faith. But it took Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection to effectively, efficaciously forgive all of our sins. So smarter theologians can call in and take me on on that one. <laughs>
3: I like it. A different segment. There you go. Challenge, <laughs> Dr. <laughs> yeah, Easley. Right.
1: Smarter people than Michael, <laughs> call in and take him to task. Yeah. That'd be a long set of phone calls. Oh,
3: okay. Our final question from another David. And I mean, we've got lots of Daves right now. We're in our friend Dave Gazarian's studio right now recording. So we're surrounded by? 3D. David's um, let's listen to David's question.
2: Hi, this is David calling Michael. Uh, just had a quick question for you. I was on the Bible app the other day and I read the scripture of the day. And a lot of times they'll have relatable, um, little scriptures that you can go through like programs that are, you know, a few days long. And, uh, one was called breaking the bonds of familiar spirits. So I just wanted to see kind of, Maybe what your knowledge of that sort of thing is, uh, it seems like a lot of what the scripture that I found had actually spoken about, uh, was kind of sorcery, divination, uh, that sort of thing. And I'd also watched some other videos with people talking about their experiences, uh, where it could be curses in their family, you know, where it could be, um, Just continuing addictions going down through families or, you know, families having histories of divorce. So just a, just a few different things there. Uh, and at first I I hadn't really heard the term before. So I was like, Oh, well, let's, let's try and figure out, you know, what scripture actually says about this. Uh, so I was just curious to know, uh, what you might think. Thanks so much. Have a great day.
1: The sins of the Father is an interesting phrase, and uh, I have friends that, not to be unkind, but I would put in a more charismatic, more experiential Christianity, and friends of mine who would be more arch-reformed in all points in between, none of us like categories, but that's the reality of it, who would hold very different opinions on this. I have been part of uh, prayer groups where people have prayed, breaking the bondage of my, you know, you mentioned addictions or alcoholism or generational sin. I think that's a misunderstanding of the passage. Um, Now, there is a horizontal aspect of this. A person who grows up in an abusive home tends to marry an abusive person. And that's just, I mean, let's think about that very practically. It's common sense. It's all you know. It's unconscious awareness of what we're doing. It's all, you know, why would a person go back to an abusive relationship? It's all I've known. So let's don't overthink this too much. Consequences of our sins, and some of the ones you mentioned, certainly impact our family systems, where I differ is going back and somehow praying away these spirits of deceit or this you know, this bondage that somehow my children are entrapped in because I had a struggle with sin. I don't think that's what the text is saying. There are natural theological implications of a person that's in, in pornography, in alcoholism, in chemical addiction, in abusive relationships, fill in the blank, that will affect us as a family system as a home, as our children, as our parentage. Uh, That said, uh, we're free agents. And uh, some of us didn't grow up in Christian homes and came to Christ. Some of us grew up in Christian homes and didn't come to Christ. So I'm not going to do a one-to-one correlation, and I think we overstate this. last thing I would say is, in, in, in tandem with this free agent, you and I stand on our own two feet before God, I don't want to be unkind, but I think it's a convenient thing to blame my bondage, as you referred to, or curse, as you referred to, on somebody else. I need to own my sin. And one of the axioms I often say is uh, maturity is when you stop blaming your past, you own your present, and you plan your future. Stop blaming the past, own your present, and plan your future. Uh, No matter how I was reared, the hard things that happened to me, no doubt hurt and people are victims and damaged and wounded deeply. That's the past. And no amount of, you know, uh, uh, apology or whatever is going to take away that injury. So as an adult, I've got to own my present. This is my reality. I grew up in a dysfunctional home. I was wounded deeply. I was hurt. I was wounded. I I carried the scars of this. That's adulthood. Now, super maturity, what am I going to do about it? I'm going to plan my future. I know I'm forgiven. I know Christ loves me. I know God's not mad at me. I know he'll forgive me every time I come to him. That's maturity. Stop blaming the past. Own the present and plan the future. And we are what? New creations in Christ Jesus. Uh, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. So I'm going to cling to the fact that when I came to Christ, I'm new. And I have to understand what that means and that's called sanctification.
3: Okay, so would you take that idea of a new creation and would that be applicable? I mean, because he also mentions like sorcery and divination. And I mean, I, I have heard testimonies of folks who were practicing in witchcraft. Were pra- I mean, sure. and, and this conversation of what kind of, um, sp- I mean, essentially like spiritual, like spirit oppression that they may have on their lives because they were, I mean, playing with a fire in a sense of, angels and demons and that spiritual world is very real
1: if we look at deuteronomy you know 13 we've got some real specific law about you killed these people wow <laughs> you know yeah. i mean the you the, the practice these things yeah um we, we don't know exactly what happened to the sons of korah with the strange fire but you know their family their tribes consumed yeah because of what they did so certainly there was a corollary in the old testament that god didn't toy around with these things What I'm what I'm referring to is a New Testament framework and mindset and the power of God's permanently indwelling Holy Spirit in the believer. Yeah, I think that's a little different. And again, I don't want to parse this too finely. I do think we're all let's just generic. We're all oppressed by things we did as children. Mm -hmm. or young adults, Mm -hmm. or young Christians. I mean, goodness me, oh my, if I go back to before I came to Christ, my teenage years, I would never run for political office. (laughs) Never. Well, they didn't have Facebook then, so you might be okay. But it doesn't matter. People come Mm -hmm. out of the woodwork and say any kind of thing about you. Goodness me, oh my. So the reality is, you know, who's got a pristine, perfect past? Yeah. Now, it's easy to talk about a spirit and oppression. Now, do I believe... That Satan and his minions are alive and active, yes. But I would also say you only are influenced by Satan and his temptations insofar as you let him. Meaning, mm-hmm. he can't force us, he can't oppress us to a point where we're un- not in control of that. Mm-hmm. If the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, I just don't think the Holy Spirit's going to let an oppressive spirit harass a believer mm-hmm. who's walking faithfully, confessing his or her sin, uh, in the Word, in prayer, around Christians who are helping them in a community. God's Word, God's people, God's Spirit. I just don't believe that we can hide under this oppressive spirit thing. Uh, and I and I've been involved with people both on the mental side of this as well as the so-called spiritual oppression. I'm not saying it's not a, a, a viable uh, discussion. I think we give Satan power when we talk about him in terms of, I'm spiritually oppressed. Mm -hmm. The demons and temptation are affecting me. Mm -hmm. And Satan just rubs his hand and licks his chops and Mm -hmm. goes, yeah, I've got him worried about me. Mm -hmm. You cling to Christ. You stand by what Christ has done. Even Michael, the great archangel, was not allowed to judge Satan. Mm -hmm. That's left to Christ So this idea of spiritual warfare and fighting against dominions, I think is really bad theology. Let's cling to Christ's coattails. Mm -hmm. Let's, quote, stand behind and beside Christ and the cross. I think he does a better job of dealing with these so-called oppressions and things than we do. And, And again, it's a popular thing. We open ourselves up via Ouija boards. We open ourselves... You know, all kinds of goofy stuff on, on uh, apps on phones and sure. nonsense that people get sucked into horoscopes. Or There's one my pastor friend used to call them horrorscopes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we open ourselves up to stuff. Yes, Christ is more than capable of addressing these issues. Why am I trying to joust, you know, the dragon yeah. with a toothpick yeah. when I have the word of Christ to be my armor bearer and my my savior
3: yeah all right well if you have a question for michael 615-281-9694 it'll be in the show notes we look forward to hearing your call in context is engineered by chad cates produced by hannah seymour and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.